Amen. So we are nearing the end of our series entitled Kingdom Culture. If you have been with us for the first five weeks, you know that tonight we are on the sixth blessing. We have been looking at the very beginning of Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. And the very beginning is where he lays out the Beatitudes, the the eight blessings that are uh, the values and the culture of Jesus' kingdom. And it's been exciting for me and fun for me to preach this series, uh, but it's also been really challenging and also encouraging. And I think one of the things that I was thinking about this week as we're going to be looking at the sixth blessing tonight is it is unbelievable how one sentence by Jesus can have so much depth and beauty and conviction and encouragement and challenge all wrapped up. It's one statement. We're looking at one statement, one sentence each week, and yet we could preach on just one statement by Jesus for the rest of our lives and not unearth all of its beauty and power. And I think that is so encouraging and it is so beautiful to see the power of God's word because we believe that this text is not simply just uh, helpful words of wisdom for life, but it is in fact God's word. And so tonight is no different where Jesus says this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I was thinking about it this week as I was reading uh, this verse, this blessing. It's interesting its position. Because there's eight blessings, this is the sixth blessing, and it's almost hiding. We've been reading every single week the Beatitudes. And I wonder if you're like me as you're reading it, there are certain Beatitudes that jump out. You know, the first one jumps out because it's the first one. It's blessed are the poor in spirit. And for some reason, for me, mercy jumps out. And hungry and thirsting for righteousness jumps out because I'm kind of confused on what that means. Weird terminology. But sometimes when you're reading it, it's like the, the pure in heart. You just kind of like move right past that. It's almost hiding in the text. And, and what's interesting about that is that this blessing seems to be the one that really connects with the deepest level of the human heart. Because every single human heart desires to see God, to experience God, to know God. Every single one of us in this room has journeyed through a few questions. The questions that are, is there a God? And if there is a God, can that God be known? Can he be seen through eyes of faith? Can he be experienced This is a question that everyone asks. And then you have many different positions and beliefs on those answers, the very basic answers of the human heart. Is there a God? Can that God be known? Can that God be seen through the eyes of faith and experienced? And yet, the blessing, which is that you will see God if you're pure in heart, is here in the sixth position. Why is that? We know that Jesus' words are so deep and beautiful and powerful, and also Jesus' delivery is intentional. It's not like he was just sitting there thinking, let me just pull out like eight random blessings and just throw them in any order and just share with them because people want me to preach, so I'm just going to say something. Like, no, it's very intentional that he puts, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God here in this position. And if you have been with us uh, throughout this series, you have maybe noticed that I've been hinting at something the entire time, and that is that there is a very purposeful and strategic structure of this entire beatitude. 
There's a structure that Jesus lays out, and I want to share that with you tonight so you can see and understand why does Jesus put this blessing here in the sixth position when every single person desires to see God. It seems like it should be the first one because spirituality is just a journey of trying to behold God through eyes of faith. It's the deepest level of our heart. Why is it here? Well, here's the, the, the structure of the Beatitudes. You're going to see a slide behind me. It's going to go in waves, and you're going to Hopefully, this is not too nerdy for you. It's really exciting for me. So hopefully you enjoy it as well. But the first three blessings go together. Okay, the first three blessings deal with your need, with your brokenness. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Right, blessed are the poor in spirit is a recognition that you are spiritually bankrupt. You have nothing to offer God. You cannot earn his love and his forgiveness. You're spiritually bankrupt. You can only rely on God's grace. And then you have blessed are those who mourn, and mourning specifically over your sin, over your flaws and your failures and your proclivities to rebel against God and to choose your own path. And then blessed are those who are meek, which is to be honest about yourself, to recognize, yeah, I'm a flawed person, and I can take criticism. I don't have to be defensive. I don't have to justify. I can receive it. I can process it because I know who I am. I know that I'm spiritually bankrupt. I'm poor in spirit. I know that I'm flawed. I mourn over my, my sin and the consequences that it brings in my life, and I can be meek. The first three blessings deal with your need. And then you reach the fourth. And the fourth blessing is the central blessing. It is the middle. It is the climax of all of them. And as blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And we, we discuss that and we say what that means is that you're struggling to live like Jesus. Blessed are those who struggle to live like Jesus by listening to Jesus and you will be satisfied. You will see God pour out satisfaction, fulfillment, completion into your life. And then the next three, blessings five, six, and seven, they also go together. And these blessings are the result of recognizing your need and the receiving of God's grace. So the first three blessings, you recognize your need, you're receiving God's grace. Then you find satisfaction as you're struggling to live like Jesus in the very center. And then the next three, are a result of you receiving God's grace and recognizing your need. We've, we've been saying that they go together. You can't just pick one blessing and apply it to your life. They go, start at the beginning, and you work your way all the way down. So blessed are those who are merciful, are merciful because they've received mercy. Blessed are the, poor, the pure in, in heart, as we'll see tonight. These are all outcomes. Blessed are the peacemakers. And then the very last blessing, which is blessed are the persecuted, is an outcome so when you're living out the first seven blessings, the eighth is going to be true of you. And you're like, how is blessed are the persecuted a blessing? That doesn't seem like a blessing at all. Well, you're going to have to come to the last week of the series to find out why. It's a little teaser. But that is the outcome of living the first seven. Here's a way that I think is helpful to think about the structure here. So the first three blessings are like climbing a mountain, you're ascending the mountain. You're recognizing your need. You're ascending the mountain. They go together. And then you reach the very top of the mountain. The very top of the mountain is the fourth blessing. That is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And when you're at the top of the mountain, what happens? When you've ever climbed a mountain before, you're up there, and your vantage point is different. You see things differently. The, the surroundings look and, and feel different now because you're viewing them from the top of a mountain. So the same is true here. As the first three blessings become true of you and you reach the top of the mountain where you see the satisfaction that God pours out in your life as you're struggling to live like Jesus, it changes you. 
changes your perspective, your vision, your affections, your desires, and then you begin to descend the mountain on the opposite side. And you're a new person. You're different now. You're merciful. You're pure in heart. You're a peacemaker. Then when you reach the bottom of the mountain, you head home. And when you head home, you want to tell everybody about this mountain. You want to tell them they need to come to the mountain. They need to send the mountain. They need to go. To, it's an amazing mountain. It's changed you. And that's why you get persecuted. Because you begin to tell people about Jesus and how he can change your life and what's happened in your life and persecution will come. This is the structure here. It's a beautiful structure. It's an exciting structure. And there's even more. Um, and this gets me really excited. You're like, there's more. Oh, my goodness. The first three blessings and the blessings after the central one, so one through three and five through seven, also correspond. So as you ascend the mountain and then as you descend the mountain, those go together. So those who are poor in spirit are those who are merciful. Blessing one and blessing five go together. So you can't be merciful unless you recognize that you've received the mercy of God. But tonight's blessing, which is blessed are the pure in heart, corresponds with blessed are those who mourn. And that feels off, at least for me, feels off. Because you're like, okay, blessed are the pure in heart. It seems to suggest that you're blessed, you're going to see God, you're going to experience God and know God because you're pure in heart, like you're living a good life, you're doing things right. You have pure intentions. How does that correspond with mourning over your sin? How does mourning over your impurities correspond with being pure in heart? And I'm going to give you a little spoiler. The spoiler is this. The only way that you can have a pure heart is when you mourn over the impurity of your heart. It's the only way to see a purity of heart arise in you. So you must mourn over the condition of your heart in order to see purity arise. So the question I asked at the very beginning, which is why does Jesus put this blessing here in the sixth position? And I think it's because if it was the first one, or even one of the first few, I think our tendency would be this, is to read it, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And immediately think to ourselves, okay, let me now evaluate myself. Am I pure in heart? I'm a pretty good person. I do some good things. I have pure intentions. I want to do good things. I don't always, of course, I make mistakes. But I would consider myself pure in heart. Therefore, I should receive the blessing of seeing God. This is our natural tendency, right? And it's such an important truth to get. And I think Jesus puts it here in the sixth position so we don't fall into that because we've already walked through, blessed are those who are poor in spirit and those who mourn and those who are meek and all these other ones that have led us to this place to not think too highly of ourselves. Because our natural tendency is to believe that we can see and we can behold and we can experience God because we're moral, because we do good works, because we have strong discipline. As we said last week, because we are applying things we're learning, therefore, because of our application, we're going to experience and see God. And Jesus wants to make sure that that doesn't happen. I want to read uh, an excerpt from a chapter in the book of Psalms. And I want you to read it aloud with me. I'm going to read it slow. Don't worry. I won't like speed read. I'm going to read it really slow. I want you to read it aloud with me. And I want you to absorb it. I want you to like make it personal. 
And just think about what your natural reaction is as you read this psalm with me. And I want to say one thing at the very beginning, which is very important. It's going to say, uh, use the masculine pronoun, it's going to say he. This does not only refer to men, for the ladies in the room, okay? This is true of you as well. It's referring to mankind, to humanity. So this is for all of us, not just a psalm for men, okay? This is for men and women. You're going to see it on the screen behind me. I want you to read it aloud with me, okay? Will you read it with me? Here's what it says. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully and righteousness, oh, sorry, he will receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. That makes you feel a lot better when I mess up the reading, right? When you read this, what is your reaction to that? Just look at the words up there. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart, who don't give their soul to what is false, who don't swear deceitfully, those are the people that are going to receive blessing. If you're like me, your natural tendency when you read this psalm, among many other passages in the Bible, is to think to yourself, okay, Purity of heart equals purity of action. Because it seems to say here on the screen that who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who is going to see and experience and know God? It is those people that have clean hands and a pure heart. Well, who are those people? Well, those are the people that do not give their soul. They don't lift their soul to things that are false. They recognize this is bad. This is false. I'm going to not do that. I'm going to do good things. I'm going to give my soul to good things. I'm going to be a good person, and I'm not going to swear deceitfully, meaning I'm not going to speak out of both sides of my mouth. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to keep my promises. So you think to yourself when you read this, got it. Okay. Figure out where my, my soul has been lifted to things that are false and redirect it to things that are good. Be a good person and be honest. Keep your promises. And then you have clean hands and a pure heart, and you can see and know and experience God. You can stand before God. See, our natural tendency is to elevate our actions over our attitude. We discussed this last week. We believe that our actions matter way more than our attitude. So purity of heart really just means purity of actions. It means being a good person, trying to live the right life, trying to do the right thing, not trying to break your promises, being honest, recognizing where your heart is lifted up to something that is false and then redirecting to something that is true and good. This is our tendency. And we can read this into everything. But it's not only our tendency, it is our cultural norm. I bet you if, oh, if we did an experiment tonight and we said, hey, I want you to go out on Brickle Ave and I want you to walk around and I want you to ask 10 people this question. I want you to say to them, if there is a God, do you think God would let you into heaven? I can almost guarantee every person you ask will say either yes or I think so. And then if you follow it up with this, okay, well, if God is going to let you into heaven, if there is a God, why? Why would God let you into heaven? Almost every single person will say, um, because I'm a good person. Right? Have you heard that? Have you, do you think that? Have you experienced that? Almost every single person will say, God, if there's a God, surely God will let me into heaven because I'm a good person. 
I have purity of heart because I have purity of actions, at least according to my judgment. See, there's this cultural arrogance that we tolerate that's normal for us. We're okay with promoting ourselves, and we're okay with elevating ourselves over other people. And you're like, Carter, I don't elevate myself over other people. Well, you can't say that unless you do. If there is a God, and God lets people into heaven because they're good, and you view yourself as good, and you're claiming that, that means you view other people as evil. It means that you're thinking to yourself, okay, I know some people that are not good, and I'm better than them. I'm good. They're not. And God will let good people into heaven, not evil people. And when we begin to walk this down, you begin to think to yourself, yeah, like, I believe that. Like, God is loving, and he seems fair. Seems like good people should go to heaven, and bad people should not go to heaven. And then the conversation typically evolves into, well, okay, well, Carter, like, are you, I don't think murderers should go to heaven. They're bad people. They're evil. I don't think people that, that physically abuse other people should go to heaven. Those are evil people. I don't think people that manipulate people into doing horrible things should go to heaven. They're evil people. And we, every single one of us can agree that these are evil acts. And they're done from a heart that is impure. And they're horrific and they're horrible. But here's the problem. When you, when you walk down that logic and you process that, because this is our cultural norm and this is our natural tendency to think purity of heart is purity of action. Where does an evil person end and a good person begin? Like, where is that? Because that's pretty important to figure out. Where does an evil person end and a good person begin? So, like, are bullies evil or good? Are people who cheat on their spouse or their boyfriend or girlfriend, are they evil or good? Are people who commit fraud and con people out of their life savings and money, are they evil or good? Are people who devote more time to their work and neglect their family evil or good? Are people who lie to get ahead evil or good? Are people who are greedy and not generous evil or good? So what happens is, as we begin to process this, like the line between good and evil gets like really thin, really thin. We don't know exactly where like an, a quote-unquote evil person ends and a, and a good person begins. And what I think is interesting is often when you ask this question about okay, well, well, if there's a God, and why would he let you into heaven because I'm a good person? I've never, ever met anyone that has said this. Well, I believe that God lets good people into heaven, but I'm not a good person. We always put ourselves on the good side. I've never met someone that says, I'm a horrible person, don't talk to me, right? Like, we're always good. We're, somehow, we've always evaluated ourselves and said, yeah, I'm on the good side. And what happens is, is, is because we have this great fallacy of our time, which is that we are unable to own our brokenness and our sin and our evil and our trouble and, and our shame and all the things that we're prone to do. We're unable to own it because we blame it on our environment. Are you there? Have you experienced that? Do you feel that? It's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm pure. I'm pure in heart, but my environment has brought in the impurities. I'm really a good person. I'm really pure, but my environment has kind of made these things and done these things to me in my life. Now, certainly your environment can play a role. Nature surely plays a role. Nurture plays a role in your life. It can incite certain behaviors. It can make things normal that shouldn't be normal. It can affect your worldview. It can inflame certain desires or it can quench them. But the truth is this. The environment does not create 
the evil or the sin or the problem. It may encourage it. It may elevate it. It may inflame it so it comes out in your behavior, but it does not create it. Right? For instance, if you're born and raised in an American society, in an American environment, that may encourage in you greed and selfishness. It could encourage that in you, but it doesn't create it because greed and selfishness have been a part of every human civilization since the beginning of time. So the environment can play a role, but it doesn't create the problem. Biblically speaking, actually, mankind fell in a perfect environment. In a perfect environment, we chose impurity. The only thing that the environment is capable of doing is elevating or encouraging the impurity of your heart that already exists. This is why you can have two people from a strikingly similar environment, strikingly similar upbringing, and one does something horrific and the other person lives a quote-unquote normal life. We even actually have medical terms to describe people that are born with certain proclivities to do things. And it doesn't matter whether or not they are in a healthy environment or they're in an unhealthy environment. It is not going to change the impurities that are there. And the problem is, is that we, we, we recognize that, we see that, but we don't own that for ourselves. You may not have any medically qualified terms that are attributed to you. But the truth is this. Every single one of us in this room has an impure heart. We have things that we are prone to do, and it doesn't matter what environment we were raised in or what has happened or hasn't happened. Of course, that can play a role, and it can and make things much more difficult. But we all have an impure heart, and it doesn't matter if society claims that because of how we live and what we do, we're quote-unquote a good person. When we really look inside, we know that we the impurity that is there was not because of something else. It's who we are. We all have it. We're all in the same boat. And so when you read this blessing in the very beginning, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Oftentimes your first response may be positive and hopeful, like, hey, I'm pretty, I'm pretty pure. I'm pretty good. So I'm, this blessing I can check off. I'm going to see God. I'm going to experience him. And if I'm not seeing God and I'm not experiencing him, it's because I need to have some more pure actions and to do some more pure things. And then I'll see and know and experience God. But when you look at your heart, you begin to realize, wait a second, I don't have a pure heart. I don't have a pure heart at all. So how am I going to see God, which is the deepest desire of my heart, is to see and know and experience God. If I'm not capable of having a pure heart, how will I see and know God? This is something that we begin to process, right? Where you think, well, how can I approach God? If God is pure and perfect, and I'm impure and imperfect, how am I going to approach him? It's like imagine making a milkshake, and you have fresh ice cream. And you have three big scoops of ice cream, and you put it in, you go to the refrigerator, and you get the milk, and you open the milk, and it hits that smell, right? And you shake it a little bit, you look inside, it looks like cheese, right? You look at the expiration date, it's like six weeks past. You're like, oh no. But then you think to yourself, you know what? I believe in this milk. This, this milk has some impurities, yeah. It has some faults, it has some failures, but this milk is good. This is good milk. 
And yeah, it's a little bit past the expiration, but I believe that this milk is going to make itself pure. It is going to fix all of that. So, you know, I'm just going to pour it right in the milkshake. I'm going to believe in it a little bit. I'm going to blend it up. I'm going to take a sip. That's disgusting. (laughs) We do not mix pure things and impure things. Even as you're imagining that, you wanted to throw up. You're like, no. We will not do that. We do not believe that impure things can make themselves pure because we believe in them. They're, they're pretty much good. No. So why will we think that impure people and imperfect people can approach God who is perfect and pure? Why would we assume that we can do that? We can't do that. And so the question is how in the world can we see and know and experience God if we don't have a pure heart? So where you get this great feeling of inadequacy. Have you ever been to a party where you knew the party was like out of your league? You're like, how'd I get invited to this? And you like show up at the door, you take a deep breath and you look at your present, maybe you have like a bottle of wine and you think to yourself like, I don't know how these people dress. Am I wearing the right clothes? Like this is gonna, I really hope I'm wearing the right clothes and I really hope they don't judge me for this wine. What if it's like wine snobs and they're like, oh my gosh, it's only a $20 bottle. You know, so you're like, really nervous, and then you knock on the door and you go in. See, this is how it can feel when you really deal with the the truth of your heart. When you really look at your heart and you're like, no, I'm not pure in heart. I thought I was good, but I'm not. I'm really not. It's like you're standing at the door and God's on the other side and you, you recognize, like, I don't have the right clothes on and I don't have any gifts. Like, I don't have anything to offer. I shouldn't be here. Is God going to let me in? So who are the pure in heart people that get to see God that Jesus is talking about? Who are these people? Psalm 86 gives a great definition of purity, and it says that purity is is to unite my heart to fear your name. Is, Is to unite your heart. God, it unites your heart to fear, to revere, to worship, to praise God's name. Purity of heart is this. It is singularly devoted to the worship of God. It is a heart that is singularly devoted to God. Purity of heart is singular devotion to God. And when you look at your heart, you realize your heart is not devoted, right? It's divided. It's, it wants this, and then it wants that. You know that this is the right choice, but you choose this. It's constantly at war. Maybe you're here tonight because the side of your heart that wants to see, know, and experience God won out tonight. So you're like, I made it to church. Yes. But tomorrow you're like, it's probably not going to win out tomorrow. Our heart is always at war. There's a problem of division. And yet a pure heart is a heart that is devoted, singularly devoted to God. It is aimed at God. It is in worship to God. It is viewing God as the highest good, the thing to live your life after, to follow after. Another way of saying what it means to have a pure heart is to live the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all of your, what? Heart. Loving the Lord your God with all of your heart is to have a pure heart. The problem is, as I begin to think about my heart, I'm like, wait a second. I love God with my heart. I do love God with my heart. But not all of my heart. Not every ounce of my heart. There are many places in my heart that I do not 
love God. So again, who are the pure in heart that get to see God? Remember at the very beginning I told you that this blessing corresponds with the second blessing, which is blessed are those who mourn. Which means that what Jesus is saying here is that the pure in heart are those who recognize and mourn over the impurity of their heart, who recognize their sin, their brokenness, their need for God to cleanse and to purify their heart. It is those who who recognize, hey, listen, I'm not good enough for God. I don't deserve heaven. I don't have any gifts to offer. I don't have the right clothes. I don't have a pure heart. I don't love God with all of my heart. It is precisely here where you see God where you know him and where you get to experience him through the eyes of faith. Because this is the basis of faith in Jesus Christ, is to recognize your need because your heart is impure, because you don't have anything to offer God. And so you mourn over that condition. And here is where you see and you know God. The pure in heart are those who mourn over their divided heart. That's what it means to be pure in heart. It's not purity of action. It is mourning over your divided heart. And here is where you see God changing you and purifying you, right? Remember I said that this blessing is as you're descending the other side of the mountain as, as because God has created change in you. And the change that is in you is you recognize, like, I don't have anything to offer God. I'm actually mourning over the condition of my heart. And this is now my new demeanor. I'm recognizing that my heart is not singularly devoted to God. And yet, as I mourn over that, I see God moving and changing and working in my life as he's taking my heart that is focused on things that are false, and he's slowly redirecting it back to him. So the last question I want to end with is this. So are you involved at all in this blessing besides faith, besides faith in the impurity of your heart that's being cleansed by God through faith in Jesus Christ? Are you involved at all? The book of James has this great verse where it says this, Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Notice the order here. James is responding in many ways to this blessing. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's three steps in this verse. This first step is come close to God. When you come close to God, God will come close to you. That's a promise. When you come close to God, when you recognize, yeah, I don't have any gifts to offer. I don't have the right clothes. I don't have a pure heart. I don't love God with all my heart, but you know what? I do by faith believe that God loves me and he's forgiven me and he's actually working in my life. When you come close to God, when you redirect your heart to singular devotion and worship and reverence and fear of God, God comes close to you. And there may be some things that you're processing right now. I don't know your situation, what that looks like. Maybe you're thinking, you know what? I need to spend more time reading God's word because I know that I interact with God. I come close to him when I read the Bible. Maybe you've been putting off joining a community group where you can get with other people that can encourage you and challenge you to come close to God and experience that on a weekly basis. Maybe you've been, been neglecting prayer. Maybe you've been thinking, hey, there's someone in this church that I've gotten to know and I really respect, 
And I would love for them to help walk me through the Christian life and encourage me and challenge me and help me learn what it looks like to come close to God on a consistent basis, but I've been too nervous to ask them to meet with me once a month. Maybe you need to ask them. It's different for each of us. What if those places in our life where we know we need to come close to God? That's the first step. And the second step is it says, wash your hands, you sinners. Wash your hands, which is to say confess. This is the connection with that second blessing, which is mourning over your sin. It is taking time, actually taking time in your day to say, where is my heart divided? As James says, your heart is divided between loyalty to God and the world. Taking time to think about that. Where is my heart divided? What are the things that I'm believing and I'm running after that are not the things of God? And it's pulling me in two different directions. And then confessing that to God and sharing that and being honest about that. And that leads to the third step, which is to purify your hearts. And that is to say repentance. Remember, purity of heart is singular devotion to God in worship, which is to say as you come close to God, as you mourn and you confess your sin and where your heart is divided, you will see God work in you and you will begin to repent or to turn your heart back in singular devotion to God. This may involve inviting people into your life to encourage you. This may involve removing yourself from certain environments that trigger the division in your heart. This may involve waking up every single morning and praying about those very specific things that you know are going to trigger that division in your heart and turning your heart back to God in singular (laughs) devotion and worship. You see, the path to seeing God, experiencing God, and knowing God is by faith in the fact that God is actually at work purifying your heart, not that you're doing it through your action. And as you trust in that by faith, the response for you and for me is to come close to God. Come close to him and he will come close to you. Confess and be honest and mourn over your sin and the impurity of your heart and then begin to see your heart purified as it's being turned back in singular devotion to God in worship. Here is the precise place where you get to see and experience God, which is the blessed life. Will you pray with me?